Do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Berzo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. Unpacking the potential of syntropic agroforestry in Kenya and what we can learn from the over 40-year experience in Brazil and what is needed to apply this at scale in the local East African context. And why is the African continent the crucial and most interesting place to apply regenerative practices? Plus some conversations about the role and place of annuals, like cereals, in syntropic agroforestry. And why investing in unlocking water is the most important thing to do now, or actually yesterday. Plus some thoughts on water cycles. Enjoy! This is the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast, Investing as if the Planet Mattered where we talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land and our sea, grow our food, what we eat, wear and consume. And it's time that we as investors, big and small, and consumers start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. To make it easy for fans to support our work, we launched our membership community. And so many of you have joined us as a member. Thank you. If our work created value for you, and if you have the means, and only if you have the means, consider joining us. Find out more on gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. That is gumroad.com slash investing in regenag. Or find the link below. Welcome to another episode today about Forest Foods, which is a Kenyan-based premium produce brand that utilizes syntropic agroforestry. They combine a wide variety of indigenous and commercial produce to recreate natural biodiversity, replenish soil health, and grow food with high nutritional value. Welcome co-founder and director Sven. Thank you very much, Kuhn. It's a pleasure to be here. It really is. And... As you know, you're a fan of the podcast. You've listened to a few episodes. Uh, we always start with a personal question. Why soil? How did you end up in uh, syntropic agroforestry in Kenya? Yeah, um, well, I actually grew up with food in restaurants as my parents are in the hospitality sector. Um, but at the same time, I had a big passion for spending time on the ocean, in the African wildlife and in forests, uh, surfing, fishing, diving. So always quite connected to the natural world um, and then yeah I always really had a thirst to understand the world from a biological perspective so I thought how can we marry environmental regeneration with sound food production um, that was really where it all started uh, I then went and did a degree in aquaculture and fisheries management but it didn't really matter what module I was doing. It was all monocultures from finfish to bivalves and crustacea, algae. It was all just mono. Uh, we did a little bit on the integrated multitrophic level stuff and bioflock. So that really led me into my dissertation in aquaponics and into my sort of first intro to the permaculture world. Um, and that's really what led me then to the soils because I wanted to come back home after studying abroad. And at home, aquaculture was really in its infancy and you only really had sort of tilapia and catfish to choose from. 
And so that permaculture world opened up a lot of doors for me. I um, started off our own consultancy and training uh, company straight out of uni. And so that really led to where we are today and, and everything I've done in the last 10 years since I finished. And into what we're now focusing on heavily is, you know, with Forest Foods is the Syntropic Agroforestry, but also with our other company, Leaf Africa, working on getting larger scale regen projects off the ground in this part of the world. So that's what led me to the soil, really, um, in a nutshell. And, and to, I mean, if you study agriculture, but also aquaculture, like you mentioned, uh, the track to go into or the, the path, let's say, or the path dependency to go into monocultures is very, very strong. Do you remember what triggered or how you stumbled upon permaculture? Because I can imagine there wasn't a permaculture um, class in your aquaculture studies. Like what was the, the, the path that you took left or right out of this, this beaten path that lets, normally leads to um, large monoculture farms? Yeah, no, good question. I mean, we're lucky enough that you need to be able to do two uh, placements every year. And that's sort of led me all across the world. And I did meet some very influential characters, I would say, who, who introduced me to that permaculture concept. Um, and I just started learning it during the degree. So I just did an online uh, PDC, as, it, as it's called. And... It was only actually in my second year that I discovered the power of aquaponics, you know, using the fish to produce the nutrients for the plants and then the plants to clean the water to then go back uh, into the fish system, you know. So I think it was that combination of permaculture and aquaponics in the sort of end of my second year that led me to think about aquaculture in a very different manner and... It was just so much more interesting than some of the modules at uni, um, just because it it was circular. It, it it had everything had a purpose, everything had a design element to it, and I think that's what really changed the shape of my degree. I I, I was actually going to go and study bluefin tuna aquaculture in in the very early days of my degree, and then in the end, I ended up in love with the permaculture and aquaponics side of things. Sure, yeah, I can imagine. And Syntropic, when did that enter the, the journey? Well, to, to answer your question, I mean, I was born in Kenya and I only spent a couple of years abroad during my degree and really wanted to come back to Kenya. Um, and so I just became an entrepreneur out of university. But the Syntropic, I mean, I, I suppose... In permaculture, there's quite a quite a lot on food forests, which I always thought was quite interesting. And so, when I had a previous company of mine together with a best friend, we we did actually set up quite a lot of food forests in different areas on different scales for different clients. But it was really when we moved to the desert, we we got a big contract for an oil company to set up uh, farms in the desert, community farms, and that's really where the journey started. Um, of, of course, watching a lot of YouTube movies, trying to decipher a lot of Portuguese literature from Brazil. And it was only really when I went to Brazil for the first time in 2018 to go and visit some of these um, amazing projects that we'd watched online that I really started to understand it a lot better. Um, and I've been lucky since then to be quite connected with a couple of the... Um, 
early students of Ernst Gotch and some of his colleagues. So I, I suppose that really gave me um, the proper insight into how these complex systems work. And then, of course, the drive to bring them back home. Um, I wouldn't say we're, you know, by any means the only ones doing syntropic agroforestry in East Africa, but we certainly seem to be the only ones trying to push it uh, on a commercial level and spread it across all the agroecological zones. So I think we can take so many amazing um, examples from Brazil, but we still need to remember that there's a huge amount of work to do here in East Africa to actually incorporate a lot of the native species as well. Yeah, so how do you, like, quote-unquote, translate that to uh, to the local context, which is, of course, East Africa. Like, how do you take that, uh, what works really, really well in Brazil? And, and we've actually featured Felipe Passini on, on the on the podcast who's trying to apply that in Portugal, actually successfully in Portugal and Spain and now in Italy. And, and so how do you bring that to another context like Kenya? And, and what is needed to to translate it into something that makes sense in a local context? How complex or complicated is that? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. Well, I think what, what's so beautiful about the Brazilian models, um, and actually I, I owe that to one of my business partners, Marcos. He, he, he's been in, in Kenya for 25 years, and if you take the map of Brazil and you put it over the African map, you'll find that there's a huge amount of similarity with Central Africa, East Africa, uh, and parts of Southern Africa. And so without so that helps. reinventing... Yeah, that helps a lot because without reinventing the wheel, we can take a lot of their models, their successful models, be it in the agriculture uh, sector, be it in the livestock sector, be it in the forestry sector, and localize them to fit into the into the East African or African context. So a lot of their climates, a lot of their biomes, a lot of their soils are not too dissimilar from from Africa. And so by tweaking what they've already been doing very successfully for 40, 50 years, we can, you know, we, we don't need to reinvent the wheel and start from zero. Uh, whereas I think a lot of the temperate um, syntropic models that are being developed at the moment in the temperate regions, of course, the fundamentals are, of course, the same. But um, that tweaking, I, I would say, is a lot more severe than doing it here in Africa. So if you had to, and of course, I'll put some links below, but if you had to describe Uh, which for sure you've done a gazillion times by now, syntropic agroforestry to you or syntropic agriculture in general to, to someone who's new to it, but interested, how do you, how do you start or how do you describe it just for people that are listening and that yeah. have heard it somewhere, but don't really know what it means specifically. What is your, your go-to intro? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we need to respect that term a lot. And I think, Uh, someone like Ernst Gotch, you know, the godfather of it all, would would frown upon many people using that term incorrectly. But I think without trying to fully um, incorporate his definition, I would say from the way I've always seen it really is, is to use the 
the fundamentals and the dynamics of forests and forest models and translate those into the landscape, right? Because every landscape, no matter which part of succession it's in, um, has the ability to become forested or to become um, a paradise in terms of plants, even even in desert and dry land environments, right? So I would say it's really using the, the fundamentals of, of the forest to create and drive production. Um, I, I know that the... And that word succession seems to be key as well, right? Absolutely. It's not a static. No, absolutely. It's an ever-changing, dynamic um, production system. And I don't think there's one exact answer. There's there's fundamentals that can be followed, but there's no exact recipe. Like each place has its own recipe. And at the end of the day, the people uh, in charge of that piece of land or the project are ultimately in charge of what the design looks like in the end. So, you know, as long as the fundamentals are, are f- followed, then the end result can be beautifully different depending on what you want. Um, and I think Africa is the place for it, really. And so what is your recipe for forest foods? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in, in these early phases, we we find it very important to not only be the pioneers of you know, bringing commercial syntropic systems here. But I think through our brand of premium produce, I think initially is very important. So obviously creating very uh, high-end food, um, be it both fresh and in the near future value added. And then I think there's no limitation to what we can do in the medium to long term because we've obviously got the incorporation of all sorts of amazing timber varieties that are found um, across this continent, as well as you know a lot of fruit, nut, botanical species, um, and ultimately, you know how how amazing would it be if we could also do most of the arable crops um, in a syntropic manner? So everything from your daily staples, like you know maize is a really big one here in Kenya. A lot of bean varieties, uh, sorghum, millet, um, Cassava, not so much, but, you know, sweet potato is quite big as well. So, you know, it'd be just incredible to be able to do this across different agroecological zones on scale as well, uh, using small to medium acreages, um, but lots of them, and being able to produce even staple crops like this, I think. That's that's really where the vision is. And then, of course, livestock too. I mean, there's no need to end it at plants. So just walk us through it. I mean, walk us through an example of, of how maize, for instance, would look like, or how, no, how maize looks like now uh, in, in the, the predominant, uh, uh, let's say, local system or the predominant system you see, and how would it look like in a syntropic one? Keeping in mind, obviously, that we're in a podcast, so you have to talk visually and describe it. If, if people close their eyes now, sure. what bring them to a, um, a before and after or a comparison one? Sure, sure. I mean, I think I need to start with, you know, I'm 35 years old now and and obviously quite a lot has changed in this country since I was a little fellow. But I think one of the most evident changes is that, you know, lots of farming societies across the country have kind of lost their historical uh, polyculture approach. Uh, I'm not saying it's lost completely, not at all. Don't get me wrong, and I'm not. I'm really not trying to generalize here. But 
you see more and more acreages going into they might not be only monocultures it could be maize and a bean variety for an example but you see more and more maize on maize on maize you know very few rotations lots of plowing um, and i think there's there's certainly parts of kenya that produce um really good maize um, and i suppose they're just a bit more skilled or a bit more climatically um lucky than some of the other areas in the country but i think you're seeing more and more landscapes going into a single crop and i think from a succession perspective you're always going to run into problems if you remain only in or if you try and drive your field to stay in one in in one part of succession right because obviously maize falls into that early to mid grass um stage of succession and if you're constantly trying to keep in that stage you're always going to end up fighting um nature's way of moving succession forwards right and so i think historically across the con- the continent there was a lot more polyculture and a lot more clever polycultural systems that allowed for longer term um crops and longer term presence on the same piece of land but that seems to be disappearing that it, and i don't know if it's the knowledge of polyculture is disappearing or just people are becoming a bit lazier with their farming strategies and um, but that's certainly something i see more and more of as you drive across the country and there's obviously also a hell of a lot less forest cover i think we're down to about 5 to 7% forest cover depending on what literature you read um and that's just simply not account, yeah. and now let's take us to an ideal system with my maize included because i think many people think of syntropic agroforestry rightfully so as agroforestry so a lot of trees tree crops but don't really know unless they have d- done a deep dive into into youtube or have been to brazil don't really know how annuals and how these grasses because at the end that's the Uh, what we're talking about here can be incorporated into a syntropic agroforestry system. So now take us to a, an ideal one uh, that you would uh, ha- already have designed and has been running or something you would design and how does it look and feel and smell and sound um, for all of us that are uh, stuck in a city and, and can't even imagine that. So take us on a, an audio journey to to a syntropic agroforestry system with annuals actually included. Yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah, I mean, I think myself personally I haven't grown as much maize as some of my brazilian partners and colleagues but if it if i'm to describe what it would look like there's obviously lots of different recipes for these systems and so you got to take sun orientation into mind right and so i think if if people were keen to grow um certain cereal crops uh, or early to mid grasses for as long as possible then obviously your tree lines would be Uh, wider apart than if you're trying to create shade quite quickly you'd also have to orientate them um east west to maximize as much sunshine that's on the equator anyway where we are but i think the beauty with growing maize which is really actually a placenta crop really um it can be grown with so many other things because it's actually an emergent um so if you look at its stratification it's Sorry, actually I have to, I have to ask so, you what is a placenta cl- crop just to just to frame it for the audience that's not a syntropic um terminology expert 
Yeah, great. Well, I mean, placenta really refers to like it does in a mammal. You know, it's where everything starts. It's where, I suppose, babies are nurtured. And, and so I think in the early phases of uh, agroforestry systems, there's certain placenta crops that are grown to maximize uh, photosynthesis, to open up the ground. And so like cassava is one of the kings, for an example, but cassava and maize can also grow very well together because they have different stratification A, and they have different time frames of how long they're in the ground for, right? And so I think for the audience to imagine what a, what a really nice syntropic maize field would look like is, you know, you could p potentially consider the three sisters, you know, uh, like a, a ground cover like pumpkin, a climber like a bean, and then maize in the middle, for an example, if you wanted to really take it to simplicity with tree lines um, and as long as those tree lines don't provide too much um, shade you can continue growing these crops in those combinations until the land is ready to receive a perennial crop for an example so I don't know if I'm doing a good job there in, in trying to make that visual for the for the audience but um, I think the Three Sisters is, is a great little example of how sim how simplistic and um, these systems can look like on scale as well, and you know three three annual crops grown together. Yeah, because that's I think a good a good point as well on the scale, on on the scale piece, which many um, and the Three Sisters. I'll put a link below. I think it's a very f famous. But if you haven't. Dive, dive deep into an example, I think from, um, from Central America originally, um, like how to, yeah, have three annuals, which, which of course is not ideal, but in incredibly, incredibly abundant if you do that well together. Um, but on the, on the scale piece, because always people are like, oh yeah, agroforestry is great, food forest, uh, syntropic, uh, blah, 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 but I would never scale. It's always nice on a few hectares, a few acres and, and things like that. And I know many people are, and we're going to do for sure some interviews on it on how to, like, what's the role of machinery and automation and what's the, what is the strategy to scale? But if you would have to summarize it, because of course you, you have to, when you talk to investors, um, like, okay, how does this go from a few hectares here and there to an agriculture system or a, a production system yeah. that is scalable? Like, how do you, um, reply to the scale, uh, a question which you must get all the time? Yeah, no, great. So that's a, a wonderful question, and we get it asked. We get asked that all the time. I think my probably a better way to answer it is that there's constantly um, new machinery and technology being developed for the larger scale agroforestry systems. I would also like to, you know, to bring up that in places like France, they've also got quite serious um, I mean they're not as complex perhaps as some of the tropical uh, syntropic systems but you know they've got some very successful um, arable agroforestry systems that have I don't know 15 20 years old and so that's just a matter of bringing in your planting equipment and your harvesting equipment and making sure your tree lines can can handle that and in some other cases some of your spraying equipment um, I think in the context of scaling this across much larger landscapes, I think there's plenty of good examples in, in Brazil as well. Um, just off what I've visited in some of the states in Brazil, 
some of the work Embrapa has been doing, um, which is their research um, facility for agriculture and forestry. They've got, I think, over 225 million hectares of, I suppose, restored um, rangelands that were once heavily degraded and probably overgrazed. But simply with uh, four or five species, you, you quite often see, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of hectares with the what they call the integrated um, forestry and livestock system, which has lines of eucalyptus um, and generally brocari underneath and then livestock grazing in the shade um, in them. But before the brocaria grass or before the panicum or one of the tropical gr- uh, fodder grasses was added, you would have had rotations of soya and maize. And just that right now, those systems are being marketed as uh, carbon neutral systems because the livestock, all the methane and all the the gases that the livestock are producing are combated by the, or neutralized rather, by the combination of trees and pasture. And I think to be able to do that in a place like Brazil over, like I say, I think the figure is 225 million hectares is, just shows you what the potential is if we if we wanted to scale these types of agroforestry systems even here in Africa. And and so are you saying with scale you lose a certain level of complexity? Well, I think most people on scale want to simplify the process, right? And so I think that that's one of the beautiful aspects of the syntropic model is that you can go as complex as you want on a small to medium scale, but then maybe when, you, when you're when you doing it across thousands of hectares, you'd want to simplify it a little bit, right? Just so that the machinery required wouldn't need to be too advanced. Because obviously you're harvesting and your planting equipment uh, mostly needs to be taken into consideration. Um, but that's not to say that you can't make it as complex. And, and are you in that camp or are you, yeah, are you in the camp or are you saying we should, like it loses too much if we make it less complex. Thus, we need to create the conditions or the context that we can do this at scale with the complexity, uh, biodiversity, nature, soil needs and wants. No, I'm, I'm totally for, uh, I'm totally in the camp of doing it on a large scale with complexity because if you look at what I just described in Brazil, you know, the the, the, the pasture grass that, was planted after four or five rotations with soya and maize, for an example, um, and only eucalyptus. I mean, we can go so much further than that. Like eucalyptus is is a emergent, um, it has an emergent stratification. And so there would be so many more species that we could integrate into that model already and make it a bit more complex just based on stratification. Because really with those eucalyptus systems, we've got a nice ground cover and we've got an emergent, but we're missing all the other layers in between there. What I'm trying to say is if they're able to do it already now in Brazil on that scale, then it's just a matter of tweaking the recipe and, and getting in those different stratification and different layers to be able to produce much more food, fiber, um, fruit and timber even, you know? So, and And how easy is it to like integrate to complexify after you already started the system like 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 these systems are on millions of hectares and are four or five species way more complex than than your normal soy corn rotation 
and way more complex than only livestock, obviously, but not nearly as complex as could be. Like, is it, are you then relatively path dependent and you're, you're stuck or is it relatively easy? So, okay, we, we put a base layer, we're at 20% or 10 or whatever. And now we're going to tweak and add and, and, and cut and like complexify over time. Is that a doable strategy or do you need to do that from the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and I've, I've made, I've burnt my fingers quite a lot in the past by trying to introduce new seedlings in a, in a, in a system that's already a couple of years old. And I think the nicest analogy is, 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 is of football, actually. If you try and take a, a small child and get him to play with a professional football player, they're, they're, they're in a very different, um, very different class, you know? in a very different league and so what I've learned is that the best way to do all this is when you plant things together and that's why planning these systems is so important and using past experience and past research is so important um, I'm not saying it's impossible I, I think you could quite comfortably get rid of a whole bunch of eucalyptus and replant um, different species but you do need to realize then you're going back to in many ways, the early stages of succession. And so you'd probably need, again, to introduce some placenta species to be able to get that um, those tree strips ready for a native variety, for an example. And I, and I think this is where the conversation of using natives and non-natives is so important because there's so many people who are against natives or, against, I mean, sorry, non-natives and you know, I think they get such a bad rep, but we need to remember that there's like every landscape's in a different position. And if, if I think so many uh, tree planting initiatives fail all across the world because there's a big, heavy focus on planting native species. But if the landscape's not ready to receive those native species, then they're never going to survive or they're never going to thrive. They might, They may survive, but they'll never thrive. And so I think this is where... We need to stop um, criticizing species based on where they come from um, and start figuring out how to work with them as a combination, right? Because a lot of the time the non-native ones will support the native ones until the native ones are ready to thrive. And at that point you get rid of them. So back to your initial question, is it too late to change things once you've already got your plantations up and running? In a lot of ways, it's it's much easier to just start um, with that diversity in the beginning, but it's got to be planned very well in terms of space and time. And that's not that complicated. You know, you, you need people who have some experience with forestry and you need people with experience in planning and putting together projects to make that a reality. And I don't think finding that combination is impossible. It really isn't. Yeah, but it's, it is, I mean, it, it... It doesn't sound too complicated, but at the same time, it's such a paradigm shift, even in forestry to think in layers and even in forestry to think in time and in agriculture, of course, completely to, to think in the different stages and succession and layers that it might not be too, too difficult, but it's might, it, it seems to be quite far away from, from the current status quo in many places. So that maybe makes the jump, um, so difficult. And, and what do you say, I mean, we're going to get to forest foods in, in a second, but what would you say to, to investors that are interested or people that are um, in the financial sector that are um, uh, tasked with putting money to work? 
Um, where would you say, like in, in a succession or in, in a phases, where is Syntropic Agroforestry, uh, you would say maybe globally, but also definitely regionally where you are uh, in terms of uh, succession, et cetera, where, where are we? Are we ready for, for big investments? Are we still in, in the placenta stage? Uh, what, where, where do we find ourselves now? We're talking at the end of 2022. No, that's a great question, Kun, and I appreciate that. But I think what's become radically clear is that the conventional system has and continues to fail us. I mean, I won't get into what I think the history of sort of pre-colonial farming is on, you know, in South America, in Africa, but I think the conventional systems just continue failing us. And so anyone who wants to invest in tomorrow needs to understand that there's other models out there and that there's better models out there. When it comes to the whole regen question, I, I think it's a bit different than the syntropic question, just because, you know, the oldest syntropic systems to date are nearly 40 years old. Uh, some of them actually maybe a little bit older. And so we're no longer in the trial phase. Like there are thousands of consortias or combinations rather that have been developed in um, in South America that just need a little bit of tweaking to fit the African context. So I would say investment, like I would say syntropic agroforestry is definitely investment ready. Um, we, of course, here with, with what we're doing. So we're in the scale up and implementation space. Like it's no longer tweaking the, the, the solar panel to take the renewable energy analogy, but it's now, okay, how do we develop large enough scale projects and make it bankable and investable and put, put it on a lot of roofs? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is, you know, time to also mention that I think the profitability per acre um, you know, we need to we need to really focus on that. And and when we talk about the layers and in space and time and and the ability for the syntropic model to be you know two hundred and twenty percent efficient, I mean that that's really the bottom line. Is you know how how can we be as profitable but also as productive and as biodiverse as as possible on a per acre basis? And any of these models that beat the current conventional model should be considered as key things to invest in, in when it comes to food systems, I think. And, and so what, I mean, bringing a question forward that I sometimes ask a bit more later on, but if you had a billion dollars or euros, what would you invest in? Obviously without giving investment advice, and I'm, I'm not asking for a dollar amount, but I'm asking what would you prioritize? Of course, you might prioritize your own company, but maybe you put it in machinery or maybe in software, or what would you do if you had quote unquote almost unlimited resources? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it Africa-centric for now. I think this continent has and should be a powerhouse in terms of producing food, fiber, um, timber, medicinals, you name it. But that's from a terrestrial perspective, right? Uh, what about the entire African coastline and all the inland freshwater habitats? So, I mean, I think if I had a billion dollars, I would split it equally into terrestrial and aquatic systems. Um, a lot of Africa is untapped and, um, you know, we've got 365 days of sunshine, um, a huge amount of natural resources. So I would, yeah, I would turn it into large scale um, agroforestry systems. And then of course, do try and do a very similar thing in the water, uh, both marine and freshwater. 
And, and what would be your approach? Like, would you buy a lot of land or a lot of leases for, for coastal areas? Or would you focus on the consumer side of things? Or uh, what, what would you, what would your, um, your, your structure be or your approach be to, uh, to develop these large scale agroforestry systems? Yeah, no, great question. I, I think I would probably take a similar approach to what we're doing currently with forest foods in that we, there's a huge amount of idle land or unproductive land um, across the continent, huge. Um, and so whether it's a matter of purchase or I, I don't think owning outright, you know, massive tracts of land is, 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 the, is the way forward. I think there's a huge amount of community engagement that needs to happen. There's a huge amount of capacity building, like, you know, training hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people under the age of 35 to create careers in this, because, you know, I think that's the beauty when you compare agroforestry, this style anyway, to other forms of farming is this really allows for a career path because there's so, you know, an agroforestry system is so complex and, and can last so many years that you're actually, you never stop learning. And so, you know, that capacity building front, I think setting up really top end um, schools for both the private sector and the public sector would be key in, in capacity building and creating literally hundreds of thousands of um, experts across the continent. We have so many different um, biomes in Africa that anything is possible. But I think that doing it through people, the education of, of the people from a production side is the most important thing. Um, and then from a consumer perspective, obviously mass education in guys, how can we create nutrient dense food systems and why is that so important? I think another massive change since I was um, born in Kenya anyway, is that there's a lot more new diseases and ailments um, hitting the local populations that were never there before. And then you ask yourself, okay, well, what's the reason for that? And I mean, again, I'm not going to try and pretend that I've really dived deep into the science behind it, but is it because there's a lot more chemicals in people's diets? Is it because there's a lot more kind of fast food in people's diets nowadays? But all those things in combination are good reasons why, you know, from a consumer perspective, there needs to be that engagement in the educational aspect of why these food systems can be so much better than what's currently on offer in the market. And so let's unpack your current work. I'm sorry, we take away the, the 1 billion uh, for now, but let's unpack forest foods uh, a bit and uh, what you're building at the moment and, and what you're of course planning to build in the, the near future. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, I mean, because I could talk for <laughs> for hours and days about it. So maybe a specific question. Yeah, sure. So forest foods comes out of experience you already had and have. And why is it such a logical next step in, in let's say, your uh, entrepreneurial path? I was going to say career, but that sounds a bit wrong. Sure. No, great. I think there's three main points that all of us in the team share. Um, about why we think this is such an important business to be setting up right now. And I think one of them is, you know, obviously profitable reforestation. I think 
Africa's had a lot of philanthropic money thrown at it and a lot of sort of grant and NGO money thrown at it. But like, unless reforestation is profitable, it's not going to happen. Um, and it's so important that a continent like Africa that's going to be the next boom um, has a prosperous environment, right? You can't create prosperous nations if if, if the environment um, isn't there. And so one of the main reasons is create profitable reforestation modules that can be rolled out on across different biomes. That's number one. Number two really is making small and medium acreages shine again because you know that's the other thing is it's still very much the case that you know over 70 percent of the food produced in this continent comes from small and medium acreages and so how can we make those um, shine again because i personally don't think the small holder has much of a future if they are not mechanized and if their production systems don't improve and if they don't have access to a thriving market and i think Lastly, the extremely messy um, fragmented supply chain that's currently devastating a lot of the smaller scale farms um, is a real big problem. And, and that's something that needs to change. But on, on top of that, really, where can where can consumers get consistency traceability transparency that just doesn't really exist and and if it is traceable and somewhat transparent then it's all going it's all being exported you know to the european supermarkets or um to the uae and stuff so where is africa's food security if we can't look after and make our own small to medium acreage is shining again because still the vast majority of the food on this continent is produced on those on those scale farms so what can we do to to improve that okay and so what can we do well we can improve the vitality of them number one and that's by changing what's produced so like like i said you know in the last I don't know, 20, 30 years, it's, it's becomes more and more evident when you drive around the country that just number one acreages are being split into smaller acreages because when it goes from one generation to the next, inevitably, you know, what was once maybe a thriving 20 acre farm uh, 15, 20 years ago is now being split into 20 one acre parcels. And it's a lot harder to make one acre shine with, one or two crops um, or to, in, to, to have the ability to invest in making an acre work in terms of capex um, versus something that might have been 10 times the size 15, 20 years ago. So what are we going to do about these, um, these acreages to make them productive again? And, and personally, and I think the rest of the team agrees fully well that, you know, this entropic model... Um, is certainly one fantastic solution. I'm not saying it's the only one, but it's certainly a fantastic solution. You know, I also think there's no point for a farmer to be growing the same crop for 20 years. You know, at least with these systems, the the, the work gets easier, and and you know the profits it really do improve uh, in time.
And I think the more models we can, because you see the, the unique thing in Africa too, is that a lot of people look over their neighbor's fence. Like if, if the neighbor is growing tomatoes really well, hey, let's do tomatoes too. And then suddenly everyone grows tomatoes and the market's flooded and, you know, people are no longer as profitable or disease comes and wipes out everything. So by building in this resilience, um, and creating models that the neighbors will want to copy and get involved in is one way of creating a domino effect, you know? And so now we're talking the end of, of 2022, which, oh, sorry, the end of 2022, which is still weird to say, honestly. Um, but where are, where is Forest Foods now? How would you describe it? I'm not saying elevator pitch because we're not an elevator, but in, in a couple of minutes, where, um, what is on the ground? Sure. Where, where are you selling? What are you growing? And, and mainly how, et cetera. And then we'll talk about the near future. Yeah, no, great question. So we've got two models um, for the high altitude zones of, of Kenya, where actually most of the farming is being done. And we've got a, a model at 2,400 meters above sea level, and we've got another one at 2,200, and we're about to start a third farm um, at 1,600 meters. So I say this because th those are very important altitudes for Kenya, because that's where the vast majority of um, agriculture is currently happening, whether it's arable, whether it's coffee, whether it's vegetables, whether it's uh, cereal crops. So... To have models in those agroecological zones that we can then go and teach is extremely important. That's where we're at now. And, you know, having three fully functional farms up and running um, as we enter 2023 is, I think, is a really good milestone. I think the second phase and perhaps the sort of Series A round can become a lot more interesting because we can go to the semi-arid areas of Kenya, which are vast. Um, Kenya is covered by 65% semi-arid land as a minimum. Uh, we can also go to the coastal regions, which I think is even more interesting because there's very little agriculture there and whatever is there. I mean, it's it's really an industry that needs to, to be brought to life again. Um, and then, of course, there's everything in between. So I think... Having these, what we refer to as our, our own nucleus farms in these different agroecological zones and starting to do the training where we offer people, you know, two-year minimum contracts with us before we sort of allow them to go and set up their own farms on our behalf and become outgrowers for us, I think is the key next step to trying to build capacity and to create these models for the rest of the country before we start rolling them out on scale. So I would say in a nutshell, that's where we're at. We, we're, we're definitely selling into a premium market, mostly in Nairobi, the capital city. Um, but with time and scale, we should be able to penetrate different um, market segments um, and look into value addition as well. I think that's going to be a, a key part to our success as well. And then what are the crops you sell at the moment, just to, to give people an idea what comes out of these two and soon to be three farms? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, at high altitude, you unfortunately, you can't grow most of the warmer loving crops, you know, most of your solanation and stuff. So 
a lot of this, you know, a lot of salad varieties, a lot of, uh, sorry, lettuce varieties, um, some really niche crops like blueberries and avocados as well. Those are a bit more long-term crops. But anything f that goes into your sort of average weekly shopping basket is what we're growing really successfully at altitude. And then the next farm will be able to integrate a lot more of the warmer climate crops. So maize, beans, pumpkins, tomatoes, cherry tomatoes, aubergine, capsicums. Um, and to start playing around a bit more with some of the cereal crops, which which do well at altitude. But I think you know we need we need more scale at altitude to be able to to grow more um, staple crops. Right now, our, our farms are a little bit too small to grow them um, at scale. And, and you said you mentioned you set them into to Nairobi. Does it mean you go to the market, or or how do you make sure you capture that premium, or also? reach the consumer and of course bring that premium uh, back to or the margin back to the farm yeah 100 percent. so we we very much believe in doing direct sales with um our customer base we sell into a couple of online retailers um at the moment as well as chefs and restaurants our aim is to be in quite a few schools as well in the not so distant future um, and yeah, we're kind of focusing on impact retailers at the moment, people who really care what they're selling and selling a story as well. That's got nothing to do with saying that we will remain in that premium class forever. Obviously, with scale, we can infiltrate the middle class in Kenya, which is by far the, the, the fastest growing sector, I would say, of, of the demographic. And that's, of course, our longer term um, target market, but we need a bit more scale to be able to penetrate that market. And, and in terms of accessibility, I mean, we talk a lot about nutrient density on, on this podcast, but also always with, or try to always take the angle, okay, where can it have the biggest impact, which is definitely uh, where people eat, let's say, the worst quality food at the moment or have access to only that, which is food deserts in the US or many other places, which is uh, probably people with uh, with certain uh, medical conditions, etc. How do you see that? Because going into the middle class is, is amazing, but probably in many cases they can already afford or at least they have access to okay, let's say, food. Of course, not the nutrient density you would like, um, but is there any thought or plan is where, let's say, to get nutrient density food into the hands of where it matters most? And and if so, what, what is your approach? I completely understand you have two farms small at the moment. It's not something that is easily, it's easier said than done. But what are your thoughts there? Yeah. No, 100%, Kun, I think that's a very valid point. I think from a, you know, we're a private business, a startup. It, it's there's nothing to say that we can't venture into you know when we scale create an SPV or maybe perhaps even a non-profit arm or even a, set up a you know a secondary business that looks only into processing for an example right because there's very many clever innovative ways of preserving nutrient in foods nowadays and um, value adding it right just so that the shelf life is better and that you're not running around with huge volumes of very perishable um, produce, right? So I think that's a, a two, uh, you know, I can answer that in two ways. Number one, I think with scale and as soon as we enter our second phase where we will be working with 
um, other landowners as well as organized groups of smallholders and communities, there's definitely going to be, um, you know, uh, a, a, an impact straight away there with penetrating the the average market, right? The the market that the average person has access to. Um, but then there's also the ability to be able to have multiple grades of produce, right? Um, nutrient density is not going to change from a grade A to a grade C, uh, a leafy green, for an example. The, the nutrient is still there. It's just how it's presented and how it's... Which you might sell to a, to a restaurant, but yeah, the... the that the quality inside doesn't change how it looks from the outside. Correct, case, correct. Yeah. And like Kenya's just getting into this, into this movement of, you know, supporting um, discard, like oddly sh- sort of the rescue, the rescue side of things, you know. And I think that's, like I say, as uh, Kenya is such a dynamic place and it's changing so quickly um, and the middle class is, is also changing or growing so fast rather that I think there's going to be enormous potential in having all sorts of crops grown like this um, at scale, but then entering marketplaces where, yeah, you're not earning a premium for them, but you've got scale on your side, right? And so it becomes a volume game rather than a than a price point game. So um, our goal is never to be more expensive than anything that's considered organic here. Our, our, goal is actually to come below the organic price um but when i say we're not you know keen on selling to supermarkets and stuff it's because we're we're quite keen to keep the vast majority of that margin within the direct control of either our farms or the farms we're working with what's the um, the community angle here you mentioned it a few times and outgrowers you've mentioned in the current phase and and what is the the future um model look like in in the ideal phase which i'm imagining is not going to go towards a a colonial uh, owning every uh, owning half of kenya and and employing a lot of people under under very very bad circumstances yeah yeah sure no no absolutely absolutely great question so i think there's a again it's it's kind of two-sided in in that there's a lot of people living in the urban cities that have land um, in their ancestral home areas, right? And um, these people range from lawyers and doctors all the way to, I don't know, anything that fits into that sort of middle class um, bracket, but they're not really doing anything with their land or it's not really productive. And there's a lot of people who would like to sign in on this model. I, I say that because most of the time when we do our farm tours or we have visits, um, people are actually like, wow, we really want to, to do this on our land. And so I know that there's a, an abundance of idle land that's sitting there and that people are willing to to improve or invest in. They just don't know what to do, right? So I think it's that's important to say because a lot of these people have either have access to the finance or already have the finance to put together some of the capex that's required to to set up these systems right of course you need to you need money to make money and then there's of course the community aspect slash the smallholder aspect and i and i bunch them into two different categories because most of the time the smallholder won't have access to funds won't have access 
um, to what's required from an infrastructure perspective to get them on the right path. And so I think clever partnerships with third parties that specialize in dealing with um, either the smallholders or the cooperatives um, would be our approach for that. Um, we'd always want to make sure we have our own strong nucleus farm um, in the middle of that geographical area so that we can provide the required support. Um, both from a <coughs> excuse me, both from an expertise perspective, but perhaps also from a capex perspective. Um, you know, we'd have cold storages on our farms. We'd have machinery, um, access to irrigation, and little agro shops um, where the where the you know the the smallholders could buy some of their equipment from us from. So I think there's that approach, and then there's the the landowner who wants to do something with their idle land but just lacks the knowledge or lacks the inspiration to do something with it. Um, and that's how I think we're going to... And, and basically for, for, for them, you provide sort of a, a plug and play. Like I would love this on my land as well, but I, I, I'm, I live far away in Nairobi and, and I, I can't uh, or I don't want to. And you would lease it long-term they might invest in, in and you would manage it basically long-term for them and, and sell the produce and then somehow split the, the, the revenue or the profit or, or and they might even invest in that um, because they have the means to do that, but just not the means to actually do it on the ground. Correct. And, and I must be very honest with you, our, a lot of work's gone into some intensive spreadsheets, both from a production perspective and planning, but also into a financial um, perspective and a lot of that work has gone into our own nucleus farms which are currently geared to be upwards of four hectares and we need to have those strategically up and running in the different parts of the country that we want to operate in first. I say this because those farms will create our brand, a very trusted um, brand which we're going to need our customer base buy-in for first before we start off-taking or promising off-take from our future partners, be them the communities, be them the, the landowners, um, so that we can guarantee their, you know, these products end up in the market. So I think we're, we're doing it a little bit opposite to what most people and try. Are you going to test the quality or how are you going to secure... How, how are you going to make sure the, of course, if it comes from your own farm, you know, but if it starts, you start buying from others, you're going to test the nutrient density or are you going to measure, I mean, I don't know, omega three and six ratio, depending on, on like on animal protein. How do you keep quality control? Uh, let's say as that's your, your main focus, of course, like it, it has to come from a centropic, but how centropic system, like how do you make, how you're going to make sure, of course, is a hypothetical question. Yeah. I mean, again, this is where the capacity building becomes so important. And this is where I think building an army of, you know, Kenyan experts who represent us either as field scouts or who are, who end up being, you know, senior supervisors on these outgrower projects. That's really where I think the first point of um, traceability and transparency lies. I also think that with us managing them um, for the vast majority, I would say, means that you know it, it has to be to our standards. I think 
the one of the critical things moving forward for us and i think for the for the syntropic movement globally is actually going to be its own certification because i don't think we want to follow the organic um route i think the syntropic deserves its own certification scheme and so that's one thing that i think will be key to develop in the future of course testing nutrient density or making that available and affordable is going to be key and i think there's plenty of grant money out there to hopefully help us in creating some of those um, requirements right i don't think we per se need to be investing in that ourselves and um, and then i think really like what we're currently building internally because we've tried we've tried buying software in the past but you know unfortunately it seems it's not quite fit for our production systems but we're creating our own dashboard which allows us to enter a lot of data and um, production data harvest data uh, waste data um, it allows us to create a digital twin of, of of our current farms and all the different crops and the different varieties and stuff and i think the legitimacy and the quality of this data on the on the on the eventual blockchain is going to be worth gold and uh, moving forward because we're going to be able to prove a lot of things um and having it on the blockchain i think is going to be key to securing the legitimacy of 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 everything we're saying we're doing right and so i think as that technology becomes more and more available to the everyday person i think that's going to be where we're going to find ourselves spending quite a lot of time and effort in um i i myself am not very well versed with blockchain but luckily some people in our team are so um yeah looking forward to to the value of the data we collect over the next couple of years i think is going to be super important and and to i want to be conscious of your time as well and i'm looking forward to check in uh, on this in the future but to end with a few questions uh, that we always like to ask um what do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't believe to be true and this is definitely inspired by a question john kemp uh, asks often so where are you contrarian yeah um you know i i i think the biggest thing for me having having taught myself a lot of what i know uh, by reading a lot of books and you know investing in a lot of books and uh, doing courses online both physical and online i think what what i would like to see be the biggest change is that we need to start creating tropical literature for the regen world i think a lot of it is temperate and so what i believe to be true versus false from your question um it really comes down to which part of the world right and so i think regenerative is 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 a very feasible option for us i i think it's one of the only options actually we've got as as a civilization moving forward so i believe in in i believe in everything that it stands for but whether all the different approaches work that's that's a that's a separate question but I, the reason i'm talking about the the temperate versus the tropical is because there's very little on on tropical regen um how to if you like manuals and stuff and so i think i i've tried a lot of stuff that i've read um in the books 
and watched in the movies from temperate regions that don't necessarily fit the tropical context because we don't have a winter and we don't have a die off and you know we have 365 days of sunshine and so a lot of what is currently being described for the temperate regions isn't per se transferable to the tropics and so that's i think one of my biggest goals or our biggest goals with what we're doing now is to create um literature that's africa centric right and so um i think we need to prove a lot more by having partnerships with universities and researchers and and proving all this stuff on a local context before i could fully answer what do i believe is true or not about the model right and um, because i think a lot of the successful pioneers are operating in the in the US or Europe or Australia and New Zealand you know so yeah i i hope that answers that question and it and it leads perfectly to to the last one actually um i i can i can imagine the the answer but i'm still going to ask it what what if you have a a magic wand and you can change one thing uh, overnight what would what would you change uh, in the region or in the agriculture and food space or wider if you want but let's let's keep it to agriculture and food for now if you had to change one thing and you you had the power to do it what would that be sure i think for me yeah so i i think the 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 single most uh delicate as well as the single most fragile component in the agri and forestry space moving into the future is water i think we if i had a magic wand i would literally unlock water because i think water will become the most expensive input in the future it, it already is um countries companies organizations regions that invested in water in the last 20 30 years um have done the best thing they could do um i think there's obviously you know massive concerns about the very finite resource of fresh water we have available to us in a you know in a liquid form on this planet but i think um especially in africa with 98% of the agriculture being done in a rain-fed manner and with a crazy crazy changing climate i mean it happens every rainy season we're we're seeing massive changes So I think for me unlocking water as either an opex or a capex is is going to be the most fundamental change that I would like to see happening um over the next 5 to 10 years. And um, if we don't do it now, then it's going to be even more And and this is going to be a whole whole different kind of words. Yeah. But yeah, if we don't do it now, sorry. Well, no, it just if we don't do it now, it's it's only going to become more expensive and it's only going to become more difficult in the future if we don't start doing it now and when i say we i'm talking about as individuals as organizations as governments as uh, areas like we need to unlock water um and it needs to happen now when you say unlock what do you mean well i mean like right now i'll take our context for an example is you know nobody or not enough people are using rain and and storing it for an example so i mean rain is the best form of 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 investing in water because it's the only renewable form you've also got obviously aquifers and there's a lot of boreholes 
being drilled and, and, you know, yes, in some situations, water is safest underground uh, where it's not being contaminated or um, being changed. But water is a very expensive infrastructure in this part of the world, whether you drill for it, whether you build reservoirs um, to, to capture it from the sky or whether you abstract from, um, you know, rivers and, and lakes and ponds, which actually isn't really allowed anymore. But uh, I, I, the reason I say unlock is because the, the key to what I'm saying, 98% of our, of the continent's agriculture still being done uh, with rain, as in rain-fed systems, non-irrigated non systems. So when I'm talking about unlocking water, I'm talking about unlocking it for the use of of irrigation, but of course, sensible irrigation. Um, I think there's plenty of models that use water very irresponsibly, and of course that should never be allowed. But uh, this is why I'm such a fan of, of, of agroforestry, especially this entropic way, because you, if you use irrigation to um, create profitable models, you, it's very common to switch that off after four to five years or use it very sparingly after that because you've built such a resilient um, system. And so my point is let's unlock it now and make it available and make it affordable so that we can create these systems on scale and on mass. Um, because unlike a conventional veggie patch or a conventional farm um, that uses irrigation to produce the same crops for 20 years, this system of ours allows, <clears throat> allows you to switch it off after a while. And I think that's what's so key is create these, these systems that inevitably will create more water and more rainfall in the future um, because of their architecture um, and use these resources while we still have them available to us now. And asking a, a, a potential rabbit hole question, and then we're going to wrap up, but you mentioned it very nicely at the end of the last sentence, like these systems create more rainfall. Is that something you're actively designing for or taking into consideration and into account? Like how do these systems at scale influence local or smaller water cycles and even larger ones? And, and bring back rains or, or um, even almost nudge rains and nudge water to, um, yeah, to, to literally in that case also unlock water. Is it something that is part of, because I know it's part of the, the largest entropic agroforestry movement, also the regen movement. And I think we need to talk about it a lot more. We're most likely going to do a series yeah. of water cycles next year to, to really, um, change the dynamic or change the conversation to we can influence rain and water cycles at quite a large scale and we we need to have that discussion how to do that is that something you're designing with or or playing with or thinking about is it part of your vocabulary i i think it really is kun because when you i mean you there's plenty of evidence of areas not not per se agroforestry even reforestation or afforestation but there's plenty of of data and research that proves that you know areas with mass ground cover and in different stratification create um microclimates i mean it, it, it's a given but i think the biggest mistake is that people look at everything from an above ground perspective they ignore the below ground perspective but what happens when you've got root systems that 
um, again, like you do similar above ground, have different stratifications um, from a sort of canopy perspective. You've, you've, you've got the same in the root system. And so, you know, when you're building these pumps below and above ground, it's a no-brainer that you're creating. I mean, you're influencing the hydrological cycle. So not only are we using this precious, amazing water that we should be accessing now, to create and plant these these systems, eventually they're going to do it for themselves. Um, I quite often like to use an example of, you know, what are the daily requirements per hectare of a flower farm or a conventional veggie patch or a center pivot um, versus our usage. I mean, let's take flower farming that on average in this part of the world uses 50,000 liters per hectare per day, rain or shine, because most of it's done in greenhouses. Um, and let's convert how much acreage we could um, set up with that same amount of, of water. Kickstart. You yeah. know? <laughs> um, I think the answer is obvious. <laughs> and, and just out of, like, what is the ratio there? It's like one to 50, one to 100, one to five? Because you need it in a number of years, but then you don't need it anymore, or it depends a bit on the crop, of course. Like, just in in terms of scale, of course, I don't need an exact number, but just to give us an idea. I think a lot of it depends on the rainfall. If you're me personally, from everything I've seen and everything I've experienced, if you are in an area of rainfall of less than a thousand mils a year, then you probably need irrigation for the first five years. You could probably get away with with cutting it out at three years, depending on what crops you've, you've, you've chosen to focus on. But then in areas where there's only, you know, between 300 and 700 mils, I think you might have to, you know, you might have to tickle irrigate for the years five, six, seven, and eight, you know, until really you've got um, enough humus and enough fungal dominance in your soils to be able to know quite safely that you've got the water capacity in your soils and in your above ground biomass. So I would say it all depends on, you know, if you're above a thousand mils, you're in a different category if you're below a thousand mils. But again, with all, with all the rainfall being so, so different nowadays, you know, you might get 500 mils of rain falling in three days and then any landscape is going to get severely hampered by that because the vast majority of that water is not going to infiltrate into your soils, you know? So I think, uh, it really depends on the natural hydrological cycle, um, but I would say give it an average of five years and you can switch off most of your irrigation forever. And which means that that 50,000, I think you said, gallons of, of per day, what would it get you? Like how many, instead of a, a patch of, of flowers, which you can honestly also argue, do we need that? But that's a different discussion. Um, yeah, sure. Like in terms of agroforestry farms, like how many hectares would it get to you? Like in, in a in a three to 700 mil, is that 20 hectares or 50? And in a thousand mil, like the ideal situation, just to give us an idea of the potential here. Sure, sure. So I think um, just off my last four years experience up here, um, I would say that, a you know 50 cubic meters which is currently used on the flower farms per hectare we could probably do between two and four hectares with that same amount of water quite comfortably depending on the crop we're we're focusing on or the crops we're focusing on and then after a couple of years you can do another two Correct. to four and if, like this is a renewable source if you do it well and it just should get easier over time 
it's, it's using the solar panels to make more solar panels. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, everything depends on the initial quality of that irrigation water too. You know, of the, course, the problem of course. we have here yeah. is there's a lot of salts in, in, in the in the boreholes. So that's why rain is by far the best fertilizer on the planet is rainfall. Perfect. I want to thank you so much for your time. We went quite deep and, and diverse and uh, hit some very, very important points. And I want to want to thank you for sharing, of course, for the work you do to to really kickstart a, a new African uh, agriculture renaissance and, and to to make sure it is, uh, let's say, future proof. Kun, likewise, thank you for for having us. Um, I really appreciate the time. And I really appreciate what you guys do. And on behalf of the rest of my team, um, yeah, very grateful for this opportunity. And yeah, would love to check in with you again in a year or two's time to see uh, how we've evolved. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. For the show notes and links we discussed in this episode, check out our website investing in regenerativeagriculture.com forward slash posts. If you like this episode, why not share it with a friend or give us a rating on Apple Podcasts? That really helps. Thanks again and see you next time.